0: I'm Betsy Shepard, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Joan Hawkins. Joan Hawkins is an associate professor in cinema and media studies in the media school. She's the author of Cutting Edge, Art Horror, and the Horrific Avant-Garde, and numerous essays on horror, art, cinema, and experimental film. Her recent book, Downtown Film and TV Culture, 1975 to 2001, documents the art punk film movement that arose out of New York's Lower East Side in the 1970s. Joan is a member of the Burroughs Century, the group which brought the Burroughs Century Festival to Bloomington in celebration of William Burroughs' 100th birthday. Thank you so much for being here, Joan. I'm excited to talk to you about your work. Oh, thank you. So let's talk about your new book, which documents the cultural scene and thought surrounding no way film, underground film, queer cinema, the cinema of transgression, all of which you couch under the umbrella term downtown film? Yeah. Can you talk about how you decided on that terminology and what all it encompasses?
1: Sure. And and that's I mean that's a wonderful place to start actually. When I was working on my first book, On Cutting Edge, uh, part of that book deals with avant-garde cinema and avant-garde cinema history. And one of the things that I was seeing as I was working on it was that avant-garde histories of cinema tended to end sort of a little bit after Warhol for the longest time. They didn't talk about structuralist film very much. They didn't talk about anything. And they weren't talking about the kind of experimental film that I had been seeing in punk clubs in the late 70s and early 80s. And they weren't talking about the way that that sort of fed into what we started thinking of as independent cinema. When um, people like uh, Christine Vachon uh, started Killer Films, she had come out of the, what I'm calling the downtown movement. So I initially thought about downtown as a rubric because there was this mode of film production that I had been seeing in these clubs that were in a small part of Manhattan. And uh, different people give different geographic areas. John Lurie said that downtown was really 4th Street to Houston and Avenue B to the Bowery, so a really small area. There was a, a um, studio over on Rivington, which was a little further down. And there are other people who take it further down into Alphabet City. But in some ways, so that's a real fact, that there, were, there was an incredible a large number of artists living in a very small geographic space. And they were all going to the same places. They were all working on each other's projects. They were all involved in music and then in something else for the most part. So writing, publishing, uh, filmmaking, graphic arts, whatever. And so out of that hotbed, there did grow what could be seen as a kind of not exactly a recognizable style, but a set of shared preoccupations and anxieties that had to do with living in New York at that time. But they also were growing up in tandem with the punk rock movement and with – well, I don't want to call it movement, but the punk rock scene and with the no-wave music scene. And so stuff didn't just stay – in this little limited area, because they also were growing up at the same time that there was uh, cable access television, community access cable TV. And what community access cable TV meant was that there were independent channels like our own uh, BCAT channel that uh, were hungry for programming. And so they would take Stuff they would just take stuff from wherever, so there were films and TV shows that originated in New York that were going out in packages to um, other to other uh, community access cable. TV shows. Like I saw some programming here in Bloomington in 93 that came like straight out of San Francisco, where I grew up. Um, and that was like on a Thursday night at 11 o'clock on BCAT Channel 3 here in Bloomington. So, the, so things were leaving New York. And then also because they were leaving New York, they were being played in punk clubs, they were being shown on community cable access television they then, of course, stimulated homegrown production. So so downtown originates downtown, but it also, every place where there was an urban center, there was some form of a downtown scene. And every place where there was like a punk club, there started to be a downtown scene. So downtown really became this thing that exploded. Does that kind of help to answer your it question? It does,
0: and it, it, it is fascinating that it specifically refers to downtown New York and the Lower East Side, but it's come more to mean downtown USA.
1: Yes, exactly. And as far as what it encompasses, it was sort of everything that at the time was considered outside the rubric of mainstream Hollywood cinema. So people were influenced by body genre. So people were showing like graphic violence and graphic um, sexuality. But there was also this, it was a time of identity politics and the rise of identity politics. It was, uh, it led into the first generation of downtown artists didn't have to deal with the rise of AIDS, but the second generation really did. And so there were, there was a whole a kind of an impetus to talk about what what life, was, what life was really like in the United States. And so what, so what had happened was that artists were moving into downtown areas where rent was cheap, where they could get places to live, and where they could also get gallery space and production space pretty cheap. Those were very, very, very impoverished areas. This was the rise of Reaganomics. And so um, you know there's a wonderful line by Jenny Holzer where she says the first time you step over a body in your doorway, it's hard and what she meant by that was that people were living on the street and and you would see you know, numerically, incrementally, more people on the street every single day. And so people were grabbing cameras and just walking out onto the street and filming what they saw, which was often just very gritty kinds of stories. So there were stories about drug use. There were stories about homelessness. There were stories about people who were starting to become afflicted with this strange illness that hadn't been named yet. There were stories about... um the kind of culture wars that were going on and the fact that there was, um, with the uh, with the uh, the kind of increasing censorship around NEA grants and NEH grants, there was the anxiety that we couldn't tell our stories because there would be no money for them to be, either for them to be told or for them even to be shown. Um, and... And so they were very gritty stories. So they were, and they were gritty. They were stories about life as this particular generation of artists believed it was being lived. Um, it had a very particular kind of raw style. They were shooting on Super 8 for the most part, and moving into video as video became available. So things had a very grainy kind of look. They were often shot with uh, on the street with not uh, with low lighting conditions and so it's um yeah so it's a very gritty realist it looks sort of like george romero's night of the living dead the original um but they're wonderful i mean for those of us who love these films they're just wonderful
0: how fitting that it was a a gritty grainy aesthetic and it's the content that they're dealing with or you know social it's social realism in a gritty urban environment yeah as as the name indicates downtown film there's a geographical component to it and you talked about how it was this urban core of artists living in impoverished and working class neighborhoods yeah. it's almost like it's like it was the reverse of suburbanization yeah happening in yeah. the 70s when you know people there was white flight and people were yeah. moving out to the suburbs young artists were trying to escape their yes. middle class roots. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about yeah. the class dimension of this uh, artistic movement.
1: Yeah, it's twofold. Um, some of it kind of positively interesting, and some of it negatively so. So you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the reverse of that suburbanization in a very real kind of way because the people who had perhaps grown up with suburban families, and many of some of these films, especially films by people like Todd Verroe really kind of take a very hard look at what suburban flight meant and what really went on behind those white picket fences and those nice, clean, well-painted doors. And it wasn't pretty. I mean, it was never very pretty. So this is this is the children of those people moving back downtown for a couple of reasons. They could get space, like rent in New York. I mean, the spaces were kind of often not the greatest spaces but it was incredibly cheap i mean especially by comparison to what you pay now because you could get a loft for like nothing and live there and work there so it was uh, it was affordable And because people were all moving into this one area, it meant that you knew that you were going to run into people all the time. And so there was this kind of rich fomenting of ideas. And I think there was a way in which moving back to the inner city and being back within a melting pot of people so that you were dealing with the urban poor, you were dealing with people who were living on the streets, who were... um, you know, IV drug users who were multiculti multi blend of folks. That also enriches the artwork, right, and, and gives you a whole new range of influences that you wouldn't have had. That's all on the plus side. On the negative side was the fact that, you know, these were people moving back into the city, but they still had... Even though from their standpoint and from their parents' standpoint, they were living kind of hand-to-mouth compared to the people who were still left in the inner cities, they were uh, fairly well-to-do. And so as they moved into these areas, coffee shops followed and bars followed and places that catered to children who had grown up in upper-middle class backgrounds, those things followed. And so there was a way in which the original inhabitants of the neighborhoods began to feel like they were being pushed out. And there's one, I mean, there were uh, a set of laws that were passed that really pitted artists against the original inhabitants of those neighborhoods, where the original inhabitants were saying, you know, you may think you know, this is a very bougie stance that you're taking. That you can move back. We have never left, and what you are doing is gentrifying our neighborhood, so that we can no longer afford to live here. And depending on who you talk to about that scene, you get a very different kind of, um, a different kind of reaction. You can get this kind of very romantic feeling about what the downtown was. I mean, and I certainly share part of that. But you can also get a very kind of angry, resentful response as people were pushed further down, pushed further down below the Bowery because they couldn't afford to live in the low-rent places they had inhabited.
0: Was that something that was ever acknowledged or addressed in some of the films?
1: Yeah, Yvonne Rainer made a film that talked pretty openly about that. And there were also um, some of the shows. There was Glenn O'Brien's TV Party, and there was Willoughby Sharp's uh, downtown. And those shows had um, episodes that dealt specifically with that. And the other thing that they would have is there was this kind of tendency throughout this whole time period for, like I said, there was community access television that was hungry for programming. So people would just bring tapes to stations like this one and... And people would just, I mean, without even looking at them first, who knew what was going to be on there? They would just put the tape in and play it. And sometimes it was things like, um, you know, city planning meetings or new urban development proposal things. Or it would be a, a public kind of a, what do you call it, public interest announcement that would be, Either advising people that there was going to be a meeting or that something was happening in a certain area. So there were both uh, the public service announcements, PSATs, and there were actual programs that tried to deal with this. And there was a way in which the artists themselves tried to kind of to um, st- start a conversation with the people whose lives they were disrupting. So there were a couple of uh, graphic art shows where there were squat galleries that were set up, where people literally like took crowbars, went into abandoned buildings, and set up art exhibits. And one of the art exhibits that was set up, they hung their work, and then they invited people who were just living in that area to come through to make their comments about the art and about the fact that this was happening. And then those comments were incorporated as part of the exhibit. So as people were making statements, they would be written down and they would be put on the walls too so that they became part of the artwork. And uh, there was a, so there was a way in which there was an attempt to at least acknowledge via the art that, um, that there had been this sort of weird disruption, an unintended disruption, and a way in which perhaps an acknowledgement although it was never said this directly but an acknowledgement of the ways in which you can never really escape your birth class in some ways that even if you choose to move back into a low income neighborhood if you go choose to live downtown there's a part of you that can't escape the fact that you were that you are you are stepping down you know you're you're slumming in a way and that you're coming from a background of privilege to which you can return if you wish which is of course what the and what the neighborhood inhabitants couldn't do
0: we've already talked about the geographical parameters yeah. of downtown and how that yeah. encompasses most urban centers across the US and it's also interesting that you include everything up to 2001 Mm -hmm. even though the primary activity that we're talking about was happening in the late 70s and early 80s and I thought it was really fascinating that you um opened the book in the introduction with 9-11 and how that was the backdrop for um a screening of a lot of these films and how that disrupted the scene I want to read a sentence that I thought I thought was really interesting you said, and it was no longer clear what contemporary cultural attitudes would be in the wake of the attack. Pundits were predicting the end of irony, and my publisher was no longer certain there would be a market for the book I planned to write. Yeah. And I thought that was so fascinating that that nine eleven would cast doubt about the relevance of the twentieth century. <laughs> you know, <laughs> can you talk a little bit yeah. about how nine eleven? impacted the writing of the book?
1: Yeah, um, I, very, very much so. Um, so that was a big issue, actually, like within days, it seemed like of the nine eleven attack, there were all of these prognostications being made in the mainstream press, that well, irony is dead now, because, you know, we have been attacked. And so now we have to get serious, and everything has to everything has to mean exactly what it seems to mean, and we can't poke fun at things anymore. And uh, that lasted for like a nanosecond. But but during that time that it lasted, it really did have an impact in that people lost grants for doing work that they weren't planning to do. And truly, I had had a publisher interested in... Originally, the book was going to be my single-author book, and I had a publisher lined up for it, and when I got in touch with the publisher shortly afterwards and said, I'm still planning to do this, yada, 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 I got this message back saying, you know, well, we're starting to really reconsider. So that's one way in which it impacted the writing of this book. The other way in which it did, I, and I talk about this in the introduction, I mean this, this book took a very long time for me to put together because... I had a sabbatical in the fall semester of 2001. I had already done a proposal for the project, the original uh, project that this book was supposed to be. And I had, I was all set up to go to New York. I had a sublet, apartment sublet all ready to go. It was, you know, I mean, I was ready to travel. And in fact, I was plan originally planning to travel in earlier in September and I had had to postpone the trip for I can't even remember why now I think my husband was ill. So we postponed the trip and uh, but that had been made that decision had been made sort of at last minute and so I hadn't even told a bunch of people that I had uh, put, put the trip off. 9/11 happened and downtown is downtown. I mean that's where the Twin towers were. And so once the Twin Towers fell, a whole bunch of things happened. From my standpoint, uh, people were evacuated from their lofts. Uh, People had to clear a parameter in New York City, partly because they, you know, we still in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we weren't sure if there were going to be more attacks. So there was that uh, real fear kind of overhanging everything. So there was that issue. The apartment that I had sublet that was a little bit further uptown. The person called me immediately and said that a friend of hers was being evacuated, so she needed to not rent this place to me, but to give it to her friend who now suddenly was homeless. So my sublet dried up, and the kinds of the files and the archives that I had been planning to uh, use were now covered with. Toxic dust. I mean, the um, the situation downtown was really bad in the wake of nine eleven. Not only because the towers had come down, so there was ash everywhere, but th- these were this was a commercial building, set of buildings, and so this was computer stuff that had melted down. So the stench was appalling, and this was toxic material that was just out there in the atmosphere. So my archives were covered, so there was that. And then the. Um, in terms of production, I, I say in the beginning of the book that I wanted to take this concept of downtown that usually refers just 1975 to 1985. And I wanted to take it through uh, subsequent generations because there were the people who were moving downtown to partake of this art scene about the time that people like Patti Smith were becoming well-known and were moving out. But they came driven with their own issues and starting in 85, that began to be this plague that descended. And so the AIDS, the response to AIDS became huge. And that was a huge, uh, and the the rise of ACT UP. And that was a huge political movement that kind of became the second generation of downtown cinema that followed with more kind of AIDS awareness, more kinds of issues about, oh, Reaganomics, uh, what was gonna happen with the Clinton, as we moved into the Clinton era there were different political issues that each subsequent generation dealt with and i saw a kind of continuing aesthetic as i said into the rise of the independent cinema that people like christine vachon were um, were pioneering and championing and if i had to stop the book somewhere for me 911 became a real clear physical break because of the very tangible effects of the attack, which meant that people's hard drives were corrupted. People's hard drives um, melted. People lost work. So that whatever happened in the aftermath, whatever they came back to, however you might say that there was some resurgence of the aesthetic after people began working again, you, you still can mark like, okay, there was this moment when no production was going on downtown because downtown was under this toxic cloud. And so it seemed like a very clear way to break. So I guess this has been a long answer to your question. So 9-11 meant certain things for me, meant certain things for the country initially. And it uh, meant real cessation in production work. And the the other thing I want to say is because, you know, there's a whole generation now of people who have grown up sort of post 9-11, and it was such a shock when it happened. You know, we had never been attacked. The, you know, Pearl Harbor, was, it was in Hawaii, it was a one-off thing. I don't think people felt the attack in the same way as seeing, like, you know, New York and the Pentagon and that plane all happening simultaneously. It just, it was kind of unbelievable when it happened. And there was not the, we were in a digital age, but there was not quite the digital ubiquity that there is now. So like, I remember that I was still trying to get in touch with people via landline right after 9-11, trying to call friends in New York, and the landlines were all busy. And I had family that I was trying to contact, and I was getting a little frantic because I couldn't get a hold of them.
0: Another thing that occurred to me in thinking about that date range is that 9-11 created this sensitivity that made it difficult to be a completely irreverent artist, which a lot of these downtown artists were. And like you said, the Twin Towers were part of the downtown geographical backdrop, and they were in a lot of these movies. And one thing that specifically comes to mind is Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames, yeah. which ends with the the bombing of yeah. the Twin Towers, and it doesn't seem like that's something that could happen in the post-9-11 age.
1: No, that's right. And um, the other thing about the real tangible effects of 9-11 were that... Um, I mean, people always think about the Twin Towers as being a commercial center, which it was, but there were also artist studios in the Twin Towers, and there were and a lot of people who were working downtown had their day jobs in the Twin Towers. There was a lot of ways in which the Twin Towers was really um, enmeshed in the downtown scene.
0: Downtown film and TV culture is a collection of essays, yeah. and. One of the early essays is by Lynn Tillman, and it's called Downtown's Room and Hotel History. And in it, she talks about the irony of trying to label this movement (laughs) and in the way that, that classification is inherently confining. And I was wondering if that's something that you struggled with, just the attempt to describe this movement without dictating the past or its meaning or solidifying some kind of canon around it
1: yeah no it's very much something I struggled with I think it's hard to write avant-garde histories anyway um, because it always you take what is almost always a group of contentious very interesting, very independent minded, contentious people. And you try to smooth it out so that it sounds like everybody was moving in lockstep. And so when you read histories of the avant garde, you always, this is, the surrealists believed this as though they were always in accord all the time. And with this group, it was particularly a challenge because. Because it's not exactly a movement in the way that other – like you can talk about the Dada movement or you can talk about the Surrealist movement where there were manifestos and where people said, okay, this is what the aesthetic thing will be. These were just a hodgepodge group of folks who moved downtown and were all motivated to show a lot of the same kinds of things in their artwork and motivated by many of the same reasons to make art but they never got together really with a chairman of the board and said okay so this is you know you you film in color you're out you know there was there was never that kind of a precise description of what what our goals and objectives are or what our aesthetic will be they just stumbled into an aesthetic so in talking about such a diverse group of folks. And because I also wanted to account for the fact that they weren't all located in New York, that there were downtown scenes in other areas of the country. Well, it dictated two things. It meant that I gave up the idea of doing a single author book. So to account for a lot of the diverse viewpoints and voices, I opted to do an anthology so that I tried to represent as many of these different Voices as I could. And I include, um, so there's a section of the book that deals with the historic documents of things that were written in the uh, 70s and early 80s. And then there's a, a middle section that's a group of essays sort of trying to do some sort of scholarly reevaluation or cultural reevaluation of the time, so a kind of more standard. Uh, anthology type essay, maybe. And uh, then a third part where I talk about what it means, where the authors are talking about what it means to write a history. So when you decide, okay, now we're going to do the history, what is the politics of that? What happens? And what gets included and what gets left out? That's always a political decision. And I think Lynn is already talking about that in this essay, that, you know, to start trying to say what the downtown was is already just such a... That's already a vexed enterprise. For if there are any writers who are listening to the show, there is a, every year on January 1st, at least this used to be the case, I think it still is, there's a, a group in New York, as the Post Project. It operates out of St. Mark's and the Bowery Church. And every year, traditionally on the first day of the year, on January first, there's an all-day uh, readers' marathon, writers' marathon. Everybody comes. Everybody who's around comes to the church. You get five minutes to read, and they hold to that absolutely. You get five minutes if you're Patty Smith, and you get five minutes if you're Joan Hawkins. No difference. And the thing that's amazing is that people all come. So like when Patti Smith is in town, she comes. When uh, famous writers are in town, they come. And they read for their five minutes and then they leave. But if you go to to one of those days, and you stay for the entire day. And Bob Holman's in the back. He's making chili, which is fantastic, chili. Uh, so you can literally stay there all day, and you can eat and, and and be sustained with coffee and chili. But you hear such a wide range of voices. It's unbelievable. And when I think back on the last time I went there and just the, the different kinds of stuff that I heard from from Latino poets who were reading, you know, who were reading Spanglish or Spanish poetry, from Chinese-American poets who were also reading a kind of Chinglish poetry, to, you know, African-American poets, to all, just the whole wide range of people who are living in, in downtown New York now. That was also the case back then, that there were the, there was just this, it was such a rich, time for symbols, for iconography, for language, for production, that to try to say, okay, this is what it actually was becomes really hard. And I think that's why almost every Almost every epithet that we have for this movement is like a geographic epithet. So sometimes it's called punk cinema to link it to punk clubs where many of the films were shown. Sometimes it's called no wave for the same reason. It's linked with no wave music, which was linked to the clubs, which is where the films were shown. Or you start calling it downtown or Soma or warehouse district. There are these different uh, names for it, but they almost all – tend to refer to places where the films were made and shown rather than to say um, something that could be pointed at as a, okay, this is a movement. Yeah, it's very, I think it's really, it's fascinating.
0: It's pretty clear that you have an intimate knowledge of this scene oh, thank and you. and it's not just from reading scholarly articles and you saw a lot of these movies yeah. in punk and no wave clubs can you talk yeah. a little bit about
1: yeah.
0: your history your personal history
1: i um i was born in san francisco and like a lot of people of my generation left the united states for a while in the 70s and was batting around europe for a while and then i came back to the United States about the time that punk was just bursting on the scene. Came back in uh, 74, so a little bit right before. And I was still mainly living in San Francisco then, but I was making a lot of trips to New York. And I was involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I empathized a lot with the politics of the hippie movement. But I always felt like a little bit like a fish out of water with my friends who were hippies. And who lived in the Haight Ashbury. And so Punk spoke to me in a very kind of real visceral way. Everything about it spoke to me. The way that people dressed, the way that people the way that people were occupying urban space, the way the kind of the music and the way it would pulse through your body, a kind of an energy that seemed to like Shake the cobwebs out, and so I started going to these. So I started going to shows. I was visiting friends who were doing a lot of artwork and and just exhibiting wherever they could, and who seemed to me to be. I mean, one of the things I liked about it, because the seventies and eighties were was also the rise of like the, oh, you know, now we have supermodels. In the eighties, we had super artists. There were you know people like Julian Schnabel whose work suddenly became. The worth of artwork inflated, like, humongously, it seemed like overnight, and that that you would see, like, in art schools, seriously people talking to you about—not about how you do your art or how you express what you want to express, but beginning to talk to you very seriously about how you market your work, how do you get a good gallery, how do you get representation— And to have friends who were just turning their back on that completely and saying, you know, I don't even want to be part of that scene. And moving downtown and working what we would now consider to be mcjobs, you know, being cocktail waitresses, dancing in topless clubs, doing any kind of work they could get to make enough money so that they could do their artwork. And the point was to do your artwork and to exhibit it for your friends, but not necessarily to sell it and not to sell it for big bucks. And there there are a number of people. People who say like there's a there's a documentary about this time period called Blank City and I think it's Anna Magnuson in that film who says that she thinks that the end of the downtown scene that she loved came about at the time that money started creeping in that when downtown became started to be commodified that that was the end of it So especially that early moment when you would go and you never knew what you were going to see. I mean, that was the other thing that was so fantastic. You know, CBGB's was supposed to be a country bluegrass blues club initially. It turned into a punk club sort of by accident. But you never knew who was going to be playing there. And you never knew what you were going to see because the the films were being shown. Sometimes there was a back room in the club where the film would be shown like a movie and you would actually sit and you would watch it. Sometimes it was just shown sort of behind the bar. Sometimes it was shown behind the, the music group that was performing just as like this backdrop. And it was really amazing.
0: Before we get too far into the interview, I want to make sure that, that you get a chance to read anything.
1: Part of what the book deals with, you know, as you can see from, from my the way I talk about this time, there's, you know, there's definitely a, a sense of nostalgia for me about um, what the, the late 70s, early 80s were. So there is this latter part of the book that deals specifically with that, about the fact that, you know, we're look we look back at this period through a nostalgic lens, and that there's a way in which writing history is always a little bit about that, which means that, if there ever were going to be a possibility of of getting at the truth, we look back through these sort of nostalgic rose-colored glasses in a way that forecloses that possibility. And so what I wanted to read was part of this essay that two friends of mine wrote. It's specifically about the downtown archive and the future of an impossible past. It's um, by my friends Richard Toon and Laurie Stone. And I want to say that part of what has now changed downtown scholarship tremendously is that people have been giving their papers to the NYU library, Box library, the Fail special collection. So now there is like a whole downtown, I mean, it's kind of amazing to think of. There's a whole downtown special collection where you can make an appointment to go through these boxes and look at whatever it is you want to see. So there's a whole bunch of, of original TV stuff that's there. There are uh, theater scripts that are there. I mean, it's just it's enormous now. And so people who want to write a downtown history now have archives. I mean, real, actual archives, not just stuff that exists in people's lofts, which is what in 2001, that's what I thought I was going to go see, were boxes in people's lofts. And now there's like an actual library where you make an appointment and you go up this beautiful elevator to this amazing space on New York University campus, which is actually where I did one of the first um, initial book launches for this book. So my friends Richard and Lori went to that archive and began digging through the archive and began thinking about what it means to try to write a history of this past. And what they're saying is that you can't really. And so they start out just by looking at the images. So I'm going to start this again. Once again, this is by Richard Toon and Laurie Stone. You had to be there at the downtown archive and the future of an impossible past. If we described how the club kids woke up at noon to plan their gear for the night ahead, crowsing at the Pyramid 8 BC and Limbo Lounge... If we screened Karen Finley smearing her mouth with chocolate syrup in a performance, or played a cut of the punk band television singing Love Comes in Spurts, and showed you a snapshot, circa 1973, of Richard Hell leaping into the air at CBGB's, his legs akimbo like a cartoon cat in flight from a cartoon dog, his mouth twisted in a snarl. And then they list a whole bunch of these, if we were, if we were, if we were, down to the bottom. You might think downtown was a zeitgeist, so irrepressible and fluid it would reconstitute itself in any urban clutch of poor artists in flight from suburban childhoods. You might think anywhere there was a real city, there could be a real downtown, not one stenciled from Manhattan's Lower East Side, but a sui generis kindred eruption, And you would be right, and you would be wrong, because there never was such a time and place. Not the one you are always looking for. Downtown is a dreamscape, preserved of the near past that we just missed living in. There are the cool kids, smoking against a graffitied wall, looking insolent and yearning in their leathers. They are our older brothers and sisters, and we are always looking up at them with raised chins. I get choked up. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Yeah. She, and she's right. I mean, I think they're right, because they're looking at these images that have now become iconic, real iconic, of people um, dressed in a certain way, leading in alleys, having kind of confrontations with each other's in a, with each other in alleys.: you
0: Do know? you think that writing this book or compiling this book was an attempt to share this experience that you had? with the rest of the world?
1: Yeah, and also an attempt, from a personal standpoint, very much so. And from an, uh, an academic standpoint, I wanted to do, on the one hand, put film and TV back into histories of downtown, and I wanted to put downtown back into histories of experimental and avant-garde film. And I hope that it's done that, at least in part you know this is kind of veering off a little bit to talk about you know like what punk meant to us when it first came out was that those stadium shows of the 70s had become so deadening you know the just the lengthy 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 shows of people playing i don't know i mean endlessly 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 and where virtuosity was It was elevated to the expense of any kind of message in the music. And when punk rock first started and people said, okay, here's a chord, here's a chord, here's a chord. Now play a song and, by the way, make a band. It was like it sort of freed us up again, both to have a rhythm and something we could dance to, and also for people to start saying something that was a little bit different early on was just unbelievable.
0: On the one hand, it was amateur-ish but it was also very intellectual yeah it was very academic they're drawing from french symbolist poetry and and social realist philosophy baudrillard all that
1: yeah exactly and um, I mean that's the other thing that's very interesting to me about this group is that they're yeah they were I mean they were everybody was indebted to Rimbaud it seemed like um you know, Patti Smith talks about Rambo over and over and over again in her work. And there are those amazing uh, art pieces that David Wojnarowicz did, where he had a friend of his walk around Manhattan with this uh, paper cut out mask of Rambo, And so where you get his Rambo in all these different kind of contemporary scenarios. So Rambo slouched in a alley with a needle in his arm, Rambo sitting in a coffee shop, Rambo doing this, Rambo doing that. Um, There were a lot of literary references. But there also was this way in which the theory that we now teach in school is this hard stuff that requires, you know, a lot of explanation and and, um, explication. And there's no sense that you can just pick it up and read it all by yourself. It was being sold in these tiny books that Semiotex put out. No introduction, no footnotes. The premise was that people could just read it and take from it what they would. So Baudrillard's books all came out initially in those tiny, tiny, tiny little semiotext volumes that could fit in somebody's back pocket if you were, you know, taking the subway or walking somewhere. And those ideas found their way into the work. It's just, it was, God, it was just, well, as you can tell, I mean, it was just an amazing, rich time.
0: It's amazing that it was packaged like a little zine or something. I know. Well, one thing that I, that I also wanted to talk about is the fact that a lot of really successful filmmakers and mm-hmm. actors came out of this movement, even though anti-commercialism was kind of built into yeah. it. Um, I, I always knew that, that Lydia Lunch and Richard Kern were part of the new wa- no-wave downtown mm-hmm. scene, but I didn't realize that that's also where Vince Gallo and Steve Buscemi got their start. That's yeah. where Todd Haynes got his start, and Jim Jarmusch. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from the, the underground film aspect to more mainstream indie filmmaking?
1: Yeah, one of the things that happened when, um, when Todd Haynes and Christine Vachon began working together, so yeah, Todd Haynes started out as a downtown filmmaker, and I, I would argue that Superstar is definitely a downtown movie. Which, for people who don't know, is the film that he made about Karen Carpenter using Barbie dolls. So, when they first started working, one of the things that they did early on was to form I can't remember what the name of their company was, but they formed a production company because they realized that young filmmakers, for people who were still, this was, they were starting to work before video was widely available. And for people who, um, haven't worked in film, it's an incredibly expensive medium to work in. And so for, for people who were trying to make film, they they started a kind of a financing uh, production arm so that you could get equipment from them, you could get some space from them to do your editing, you could get different things. So they, they started out in the downtown movement. As they began moving a variety of reasons, began moving more and more into independent work. And in some ways it happened, for Haynes it happened almost, it wasn't like he set out one day and said, oh, I am now going to cross over into independent production. It's just that his films, because they came out at a specific time in queer history and were taken up by um, ACT UP and by gay activism, became popular in a way that sort of moved outside of the Down the immediate just downtown scene, that tiny, tiny area. And they began finding their way into movie theaters. He has said that he realized that something had shifted. He says now that Safe was the last movie that he made that was uh, completely independent, completely downtown and completely independent in the sense that Safe was the last time that was the last film where he had total control over casting and over um, like where the film would be shot. So he shot that film in his, a lot of it was shot in his parents' house. And he had total control over casting and a lot of the people who were in it were still just his friends. So as he and Christine Vachon began, became increasingly interested in making, making films that spoke directly to the gay experience as people were dealing with the AIDS crisis. Christine Vachon formed killer films. So she came out of the downtown era. Um, Haynes came out of the downtown era. A number of the people who were originally queer filmmakers who were interested in doing this kind of work came out of the downtown era. And they were talking about... um, People were shell shocked and people were angry in a way that again that it's hard to go back to because now we're used to the idea that people can live with AIDS. And at that time there was no living with AIDS. I mean, if you were if you were showing symptoms, if you were seropositive, you were that was that was the end. There was nothing going on. There had been a, a scare in the eighties where a, a Bunch of Tylenol was contaminated by a a factory worker who had gone kind of crazy. Uh, I think it was cyanide was put in the Tylenol. Six people died, and as a result of that that group, the six people dying, that is now why we have sealed tops for all like commercial aspirin bottles. It's why we have the child proof lids. I mean, it was like a whole upheaval of the industry on the basis of six deaths. Well, by the time that that happened, hundreds of people had already died of AIDS. And nobody was even saying the the word yet. Um, So people were very angry. And the films that they were being driven, that they felt driven to make in the wake of that, And when we think about like what the early independent films that killer films put out in the early 90s were like, the way that they were so very gritty and dark, part of it was a response to that initial – that feeling that, you know, we we were all living on borrowed time was just – I lost a lot of friends. And everybody lost people. Everybody who were who was involved in certain areas of the community lost people. If you were if you had friends who were in theater, if you had friends who were in the arts, if you had friends who were in bands, if you had friends who were IV drug users, you you lost people. And so, moving into a moment of the rise of independence films with killer films, coinciding with this m- crucial moment in. Uh, the history of AIDS meant that those films were pretty dark and gritty and and challenging, and that they would turn to kind of the original gritty, challenging aesthetic as part and parcel of of making their statement seemed to make a lot of sense and so it was very easy for people. Kind of to move into more commercial filmmaking, because these stills still weren't films that were this was pre Sundance or these still weren't films that were making um, a huge commercial impact. But they were beginning to be shown slowly but surely.
0: What do you think the the lasting impact or legacy of the downtown film scene Mm. is?
1: This is a moment that still speaks to people now. So people who are involved in in the anarchist movement, people who are involved in some kind of uh, alternative culture work, people who are trying to move away from the more negative aspects of capitalism, so people who are working on on food, people who are working on sustainable energy, people who are trying to do some kind of prison reform, get drawn to the work of this movement in sort of interesting ways. And certainly whenever I walk into boxcar books, I feel like I'm, and and I do not, I mean this positively, I feel like I'm walking back in time a little bit, in that I walk back into a space where that I recognize and there's free coffee there and there's free Wi-Fi and there are people with their dogs out on out in front of the in front of the bookstore and most of the books in them are used because they're donations and many of those books are some many of them are from this era and many of them are from people who continue to address the politics that were first unleashed during this era. And so I guess all of this is a fancy way of saying I think that because, because things were not resolved, because 9-11 happened, if this scene would have had a natural end, if it would have just sort of petered out in something, bottomed out, the way that the, the, way that the hippie movement sort of bottomed out when, when uh, Vietnam ended, Then maybe it wouldn't still have lasting resonance. But instead, what happened was that 9/11 happened, which meant that we found ourselves revved up into a war, which was like the culminate. It was like the worst, the fulfillment of the worst prophecies, that the people who had been involved in the downtown scene had first said. You know that if we don't change what we're doing, this system is not sustainable. That if we, if we don't change what we're doing, it's going to implode. And in some ways, I think that's what we saw kind of happen. And so the new post-9-11 counterculture that's grown up in response has gone back to a lot of the same stuff that these people went to because it's the only critique that makes sense of this system that is not functioning.
0: I've got just one more question. Sure. You are part of the William Burroughs Century. Yeah. And you organized a festival here in Bloomington that celebrates the legacy of William Burroughs. And a lot of these downtown artists were oh, yeah. hugely influenced by William Burroughs. Yeah. And I was at the event, and it seemed like that was kind of a reunion of sorts for a yeah. lot of these artists. Yeah. In in the post Nine yeah. Eleven. Since can you can you talk about what that experience was like for you?
1: It was fantastic. I mean, because it, it very much was that. You know, we had um, like Lydia Lunch was here. It was just it was fantastic. And when when we did this in two thousand and fourteen, when we did this, there was there were so many different components to it. So there was an art exhibit of William Burroughs's artwork. There was a, there was a film series. There was an, an exhibit at the Lilly Library that showed some of the previously unseen books that we have here at. IU and also some books that came to us from the Ohio library, which was kind of an, an interesting thing, and documents. There were music events downtown. We were trying, we were really trying very hard to make sure that this would be something that would be a town and gown event, that it wouldn't just everything would be up here on campus and that there would be nothing in town. And so we had, you know, events at the back door. We had events at the bishop. We had events at Rachel's. We had uh, some stuff that was going on at the Atlas. We had events all over the place. There was one I think two performances at the Busker Chumley. It was both. It was a reunion of sorts, but there were also people like Tyler Damon who were who were performing along with people who uh, musicians who kind of came out of that school. So where you could literally see how one group, a younger generation, was picking up the baton and sort of carrying it into even further new territory. And where a lot of the same ideas were still afloat, like Lydia Lunch's reading was packed. And what was wonderful to see were all the age groups that were represented. I mean, so people who knew who were coming to see Lydia Lunch because they remembered her from back in the day, but then, you know, third wave feminists who were there because Lydia Lunch was speaking really to them and hitting them right where they lived. And she stayed for a very long time after that event sort of autographing books so you could buy there. And again, the lineup for people who wanted to talk to her and who wanted to get their, their books autographed, it covered every possible age group. There were, you know, people older than me. There were people my age. There were people your age. And there were, you know, my youngest undergraduate students who were there. It was phenomenal. And I think it, again, for me, it showed the ways in which something about the aesthetics, something about the politics, something about the um, DIY spirit of the original downtown scene still speaks to spe- people in a very direct way and and I want to say that um, the borough century is we 're gearing up to do another big thing i mean we this last year we did a wounded galaxies event, which was just experimental film and uh, music that we put together for like three or four days. And now we're heading into um, 2018. Is going to be the 50-year anniversary of 1968, and so we're planning another multi-site, multi-type of Extravaganza to commemorate the uh, 50-year anniversary of May 68. And so we're doing, leading up to that, we're doing a kind of 1916 to 1968 series of events. There's going to be a Cabaret Voltaire on uh, Halloween week at, uh, we think, at the back door. There will be events like leading up through 2017. DJ Spooky's going to come in to- 2017 and do his uh, remastered, Rebirth of a Nation Project. And then in 2018, we're going to once again have an academic symposium a film series, an art exhibit, and musical events all around town to commemorate the revolutionary spirit.
0: It's a, it sounds like a little dose of downtown culture right here in That's Bloomington. Right. It will be. Well, thank you, Joan, so much for oh. being here today. This has been a,
1: a wonderfully rich conversation. Well, thank you for having me. This has been wonderful.
0: I've been speaking today with Joan Hawkins. Thank you so much for being here today with us, Joan. This is Betsy Shepherd for Profiles. Thanks for listening.
1: Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812 855 1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.